This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Politics is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara Ongwe And I'm Kyle Kondik. Hey, listeners, before we get started, we want to ask if you would take a moment to rate and subscribe wherever you are listening to this podcast. It really helps us out. Five stars, five stars. <laughs> so, Kyle, you and Miles have a new piece on the crystal ball this week that is looking at Senate primary races. And in general elections, Senate races overwhelmingly favor the incumbent. There's been high incumbency rates for decades now, um, really across the classes. Um, it's been pretty steady, um, uh, more so with the with uh, the class that was just elected in in 2022. Um, but you note this piece that uh, it's been over a decade since the, an incumbent senator was successfully primaried. Can you talk about why that's the case? Yeah, so you know the last the last senator who lost a you know regularly scheduled Senate Senate primary was was Dick Luger of, of Indiana way back in 2012. That primary produced Richard Mur- Murdoch as the Republican candidate. He famously lost to Joe Donnelly in 2012, although Republicans retook that that seat in, in 2018. Um, the other sort of asterisk here is that in 2017, Luther Strange was an appointed Republican senator in Alabama. He ended up losing his primary to Roy Moore. Moore, of course, also lost that special election. The Republicans later recaptured that Senate seat. But, um, you know, again, it's, it's just interesting because for, for there, so much of the themes of party politics is that there's, there could be sort of upheaval. I think it's mostly more on the kind of the Republican side, particularly with, you know, Donald Trump taking over the party in 2016 and all that. But um, although even on the Democratic side, you have seen some sort of high profile primaries at certain points, particularly in the House with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez winning in, in 2018 and um, the rise of uh, kind of a kind of a new small but but significant, you know, cadre of sort of more progressive members. But it just hasn't translated into Senate primaries, and I'm not exactly sure why that is necessarily. Um, but the bottom line is, is that if an incumbent senator runs for renomination, you'd almost always, you know, pick that person to win unless they have horrible problems. And um, what's interesting is that two of the incumbent senators who we probably at the start of the cycle would have thought are the most endangered in a primary, neither of them are actually going to be competing in a primary. Diane Feinstein just re- just retired earlier this week, and Kirsten Cinema left the Democratic Party. Um, becoming independent. And so unless she like becomes a Republican or something, which I guess is hypothetically possible, but um, you know, she's not going to be competing in a primary if she runs as an independent. So um, so we sort of looked at that and, and also, you know, kind of surveyed the scene to see if there'd be any other um, senators who might be in trouble. Um, but this is a fairly long stretch of regular elections where we haven't had a senator lose a primary. You know, if you go through history, usually there's at least one in in, in many years, but but there just haven't been for, for the past several cycles. Do you think that part of this might be barriers to entry in a primary, particularly with how much it costs to to raise money and and, and how much campaigns cost? Yeah, I, look, I think that's that's always a, a barrier to entry for candidates. You know, also, you know, senators are sitting. You know, statewide elected officials. They generally have had, um, obviously, have had at least some electoral success because they've been in, in the Senate. Now there are some senators who get appointed, and typically those folks um, tend not to have the same kind of power of incumbency, at least the first time around, as uh, people who won election in in their own right. And you know, we saw that with the with the most recent. 
um, senator to lose, you know, to lose a primary, you know, Luther Strange, he was, he was appointed. He had never actually been uh, elected to, um, to the Senate. But, uh, you know, there was also this sort of like, anti-establishment kind of like spasm that happened on the Republican side in particular about a decade or, or more ago. And you did see some upheaval at that time. Um, and again, you could sort of, tr- you could sort of see that as sort of uh, an undercurrent that maybe led to Trump in some ways, but it just hasn't necessarily um, continued. And, um, you know, even with Trump out of the white house, um, you know, the Republicans in, in, in Senate primary still did, did fine. And, uh, in, in 2022. And, and, uh, you know, there's maybe one example that we can get into of someone who might be in trouble this time, but, um, but for the most part, you know, these, these incumbents seem pretty fine and pretty good. And, um, and again, like you go back through history, you know, the, the renomination rate for both house members and Senate members is, you know, it's usually a pretty high percentage of those people who win. And when they lose, there's usually some, some good reason as to why um, as to why they, they lose. I guess maybe the incumbents themselves wouldn't maybe think it's a good reason, but it's something that we analysts could say, oh, well, there was some sort of obvious um, problem there or a strong challenge or what have you. I, I, you know, I've also heard more recently, especially from those who think our democracy is in need of reform, that the lack of primary challenges can also be problematic, especially when so much of of elections is decided in the primary process. So I wonder what your thoughts are in terms of the implications for democracy um, that we don't have uh, enough challengers to Senate incumbents. I could claim to have a, a bias toward co- more competition. I, and I say that's generally a good thing. Um, and I think most people would probably generically sort of believe that, even though in a lot of elections, there is not a whole lot of competition either in the primary or in the uh, in, in the general election setting. And, you know, one other trend in, in American politics is that, um, you know, a lot of our, a lot of our leaders are, are, are pretty old and, you know, th- then that, and that's sort of the argument maybe for term limits or that sort of thing. And I don't know if we necessarily want to go down that path today in our conversation, but, um, you know, if you did have more competition, you might have these offices cycling over a little bit more. Although, you know, it's interesting that while there are a lot of high profile older members, there is still usually a lot of turnover, particularly in the House, because um, they're constantly people retiring or they're running for new offices. Or um, it's just that, that you know, a lot of the turnover comes for sort of, you know, kind of natural reasons in that the, you know, that, that the or, or rather it's the choice of the individual members as opposed to them losing. Although, of course, in like big general election waves, um, you'll see a number of, generally speaking, sort of the most vulnerable seat members, you know, get knocked out, um, like in like in 2018 for the Republicans or, or uh, where, where, you know, the Democrats won, um, you know, they knocked out, uh, um, uh, I think, a, a little over 20 incumbents. And they also won a, a, a relatively even number of, uh, um, of of open seats as well, or a comparable number of, of open seats. Um, so there is a lot of turnover, but there also are, you know, if you look at the, the leadership on, you know, particularly on the Democratic side, um, well, until recently, any, but, you know, Nancy Pelosi was was quite old. So, you know, Schumer is Schumer's older, Biden is older. And of course, Pelosi stepped aside and has uh, assumed this sort of, um, almost novel kind of like like speaker emeritus role for Hakeem Jeffries. So you've already started to get into this, but Senator Dianne Feinstein, another sort of example of aging, and she made the decision to retire officially. Um, she would have been probably vulnerable this uh, in, in this cycle, um, as uh, would have been Kirsten Sinema, um, who left the De- Democratic Party. Um, are there others that uh, you see as potentially um, uh, any other incumbents that you see as potential, potentially vulnerable in 2024? 
Yeah, I guess one who stands out is Mitt Romney of Utah, a first-term senator. Of course, he's um, uh, he's he's on the older side, although he certainly doesn't look it. I guess a life of clean living um, has, has helped him um, uh, continue to be in uh, by at concert, really great health. Um, and he's back, probably one of the more impactful members of the, of the Senate. Um, he's someone who I think gets a lot of attention as a former presidential nominee, but also as someone who is willing to buck his own party on, on certain matters. Um, but uh, Romney hasn't decided yet whether he's going to run again. He probably will face some sort of challenge from the right if, in fact, he runs again. Um, and honestly, if, as I sort of survey the scene and think, well, who's, who would be likeliest to lose a primary? It's probably Romney. That doesn't necessarily mean I would pick him to lose or something like that. It's just that um, the, the vulnerabilities there are most obvious. But you know, in Utah, yeah, Utah is a pretty conservative state, pretty Republican state, but it's also not a – um, it's also not a state that's like crazy about Trump either. And, you know, Romney has been pretty critical of Trump, um, voted for, uh, um, uh, you know, voted, voted to convict him in, in Senate impeachment trials. Um, so, uh, you know, again, there'll be, there'll be room for a challenger, but whether that person would succeed or not, um, I think is an open question. You know, um, one sort of just just kind of process thing about Utah is that um, Utah was the site of, of of an incumbent senator losing losing renomination a dozen years ago. Uh, Robert Bennett, long serving senator, ended up losing in a convention um, because he finished third, and only the top two people advanced to the um, to the primary, and and that's when Mike Lee first got elected to the U.S. Senate. Um, and uh, those rules have been changed since then. So even if Romney lost the convention, which he probably would, he lost it in 2018, um, he can still petition his way onto uh, onto onto the ballot. I'm sure he would do that. Um, and what ended up happening is he won like 70 to 30 in the in the actual primary. So um, uh, that's you know that that's something that's different now about Utah as opposed to when when Robert Bennett lost uh, uh, again about a dozen years ago. Are there any other primaries that merit watching? Um, you know the. Uh, there are some there's some murmurings on the Democratic side that you know maybe um, Ben Cardin of Maryland would retire or Tom Carper of Delaware. Carper faced a primary challenge in 2018. He won with about 65 percent of the vote, so it wasn't super close. Um, you know, the, you know, if they run again, you you would you would assume that they would win. There's been some kind of murmurings that that one of the House members in Massachusetts could maybe challenge Elizabeth Warren out there. You know, Massachusetts did have a very high profile Senate primary in 2020. Ed Markey fended off uh, a then House Representative Joe Kennedy um, the third. Uh, I mentioned that uh, appointed incumbency is is generally not as powerful as elected incumbency. Um, Pete Ricketts, former governor of Nebraska, he just got appointed by his successor, Jim Pillen, who, who Ricketts had supported in the primary um, to fill the the Senate seat uh, left behind by Ben Sass, who is now the uh, president of the University of Florida. Um, that's one to watch. Charles Herbster, who was uh, backed by Trump in the gubernatorial primary, ended up losing. Um, Herbster's talking about running, um, so that's 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 another one. Um, and you know, then you do have um, a few of these open seat uh, primaries. You know, California, um, you, you've you've got a, a few prominent House members on the Democratic side who are either running or are likely to run. Um, but you know, again, it, it seems quite possible that no incumbent senator will lose a primary. But there are some there are some primaries to watch. I guess I would put um, Romney sort of at the at the top of that list. Again, that doesn't necessarily mean he's super endangered. I think it just also speaks to the fact that um, with Cinema and Feinstein not, not in the picture anymore, um, the sort of 
senators who are vu- really vulnerable in primaries is, is you know, it's, it's just a shorter list, I think. I wonder if you can talk about some of the open seats. Um, and I know that they're in various stages <laughs> of, of, uh, of competition at this moment. But what do we know, especially about Indiana? Yeah, so Indiana, um, that one might also basically be over already. Um, uh, Mike Braun decided to run for governor after just one term, so um, his seat is now open. Um, It looked like Mitch Daniels, former popular governor there, might get in. He's sort of a more kind of classic kind of Bush establishment conservative. Um, uh, He was the president of Purdue for for many years. He recently retired. Uh, Daniels decided not to run. Uh, Jim Banks, uh, House member um, uh, from the third district there, uh, he has essentially cleared the field. Um, And so even though it is February of the off year, you know, Banks is like very likely to win both the primary and the general election there. Um, And interestingly, he has gotten sort of support from across the kind of GOP spectrum. Um, As soon as Daniel said he wasn't going to run the National Republican Senatorial Committee, um, which historically has not taken that much of a role in primaries, but they came right out and endorsed him. Um, So, and he has support from other players on the conservative side too. So um, uh, uh, Banks, I think basically has this thing locked up. I mentioned California. Um, that should be a pretty competitive race and it could extend all the way to November, 2024 um, because it's top two system out there. So uh, two Democrats could advance to the um, general election. Uh, and then Michigan, um, that one is still in flux. You know, I'd say Alyssa Slotkin, who is not actually announced yet, House member um, uh, on the Democratic side, you know, she's probably the leading contender to be the Democratic nominee, but she may face real competition. And the Republican side is is pretty hazy too. And of course, you know, in in, in states where you don't have, we we have incumbents running for re-election, um, there's already a lot of chatter about uh, you know who the um, you know this is a year where Democrats are mostly playing defense. So there's a lot of chatter about who the Republican nominees are going to be in really all of these um, key states. You know, uh, West Virginia, Montana, Ohio, Arizona, um, you know, Pennsylvania. Uh, Nevada, et cetera. So um, there could very well be hot primaries in all those places. They just wouldn't necessarily involve the incumbents running for re-election. So I want to continue talking about primaries, but switch gears a bit. Um, We have not yet addressed on politics as everything changes by the Democratic National Committee, or at least their vote. Um, They voted overwhelmingly um, on February 3rd to reshuffle the party's presidential primary calendar. Um, I I believe we did talk about this last December when President Joe Biden uh, wrote in support of the proposal. But essentially, um, the Iowa caucus will be booted from the early slate of states and um, primaries in South Carolina, Nevada, Georgia, and Michigan um, by this proposal would move up. Um, South Carolina would be first uh, going on February 3rd, followed by New Hampshire and Nevada sharing uh, the second slot on February 6th. And then Georgia on February 13th and Michigan on February 27th. Um, I I think, you know, the goal, as we talked about, I think, back in December was to elevate the states that are more reflective of the Democratic Party's diversity. Um, It would also help cement uh, President Joe Biden (laughs) um, in in his bid for reelection if he if he goes that route. But um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, where we're at in this stage of of changes in the primaries after this vote um, among among the states. You know, of course, the, the DNC doesn't have unilateral power to just set the primary schedule. Now it can offer carrots and sticks to prod things along the way they want. And, you know, there's been chatter about 
basically eliminating Iowa from this process and, and kind of downgrading New Hampshire. And, and uh, you know, I think it was uh, made clear by the 2020 results that, you know, Iowa and New Hampshire just looked a lot different than the states that came after. Um, you know, Iowa and New Hampshire have almost entirely white electorates on both sides. The Democratic Party is a, you know, multiracial coalition, um, much more so than the Republican Party is, although, the, you know, there are, there are, uh, voters of color who are Republicans who vote in primaries, but it's just a much smaller share of the Republican electorate. And so, um, you know, you had Iowa, New Hampshire, where, you know, Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg were doing well and Amy Klobuchar. And then you got to South Carolina and, and Nevada, and it was sort of a, a different story. And of course, Super Tuesday was a much different story. Um, now, granted, I think Biden also was just stronger by the time Super Tuesday came along than, than Iowa, New Hampshire. But um, it was still kind of stunning that, you know, Iowa, New Hampshire usually give us some clues as to who the nominee is going to be. And, in that case, in, you know, in, in the case of 2020 on the Democratic side, they provided no clues at all. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that the, the challenge here is that, you know, some of these states like, you know, Georgia and New Hampshire, um, they're run by Republicans. Um, uh, they may not want to move the primary to accommodate what the Democrats want. Um, New Hampshire also has this long tradition of being the leadoff primary. Um, you know, even I, mean, I guess sort of the modern era of presidential nomination sort of starts in the, in the 70s following um, the Democratic Party's kind of changes after the, the, the disastrous 1968 convention. But the New Hampshire primary, you know, predates that. You, know, you go back to, uh, um, uh, for, you know, many decades before that in New Hampshire, all the primary, even though it wasn't ne always necessarily important or didn't necessarily bind the delegates or anything like that. Um, but, uh, you know, New Hampshire has always gone first. Um, they have always vowed to protect that. But what the DNC can do is they can essentially punish New Hampshire and say, hey, we're going to take away half your delegates or something like that. And um, they could also, uh, you know, they, they could get Democratic candidates to essentially avoid those states. Um, Michigan and Florida were punished in this sort of way in 2008 when they tried to jump um, earlier in the process and the Democrats uh, um uh, the Democrats punished both of those states. And in fact, um, Barack Obama was not even officially on the ballot in Michigan, if I remember. So Clinton, Hillary Clinton won Michigan, but then like I think it was uncommitted or something, which sort of a proxy vote for Obama um, finished second. It's just interesting to think about the what if there, if Michigan and Florida had um, – had, had sort of stayed in line because, you know, hypothetically Clinton could have won both of those states and maybe things turn out a little bit differently, but, but there are lots of, lots of what ifs in the, um, that topsy turvy 2008 race. But, um, you know, bottom line here though, is that the party does have some power to kind of force the states to do what they want. But yeah, I could just imagine a world in which New Hampshire essentially protests, refuses to move from the front of the line and the Democrats just say, all right, we're just going to ignore it then. Um, we're going to, you know, uh, reduce the number of delegates or what have you. So, um, so we'll just see, but there is some, you know, it's, it, it, there's some confrontation coming here, um, as, uh, as Democrats try to ad adapt this new calendar. But again, I, like I personally think, and, and, um, uh, our boss, Larry Sabato wrote about this many years ago. He proposed this sort of rotating regional primary system, um, which, you know, I could, I could see something like that. There have been some Democrats who've expressed the thought that, uh, um, you know, other, you know, different states should get different opportunities to do this every four years. Um, that only seems, that seems fair to me. Um, you know, states can make, also can, can make decisions about whether they want to go earlier or later in the process. You know, I think it's often, it's common for states to want to go earlier because there's a greater chance the primary will be competitive, um, when they vote. But then again, if you stay later and the primary is still competitive, um, then, uh, you know, you might have more power at the end. Um, you know, how much does it really matter? 
debatable. Um, but these are things that states need to, need to consider. But um, I'd say this vote by the DNC last week, um, or you know, it's uh, um, uh, it's sort of the start of this process as opposed to the the end point of this process. Back in 2016, I saw some discussion among uh, conservatives and in the Republican Party sort of processing their own nomination process and a critique that they should never have adopted the primary system because it really wasn't beneficial to their own constituents. Um, I wonder what kind of reforms you think that the Republican National Committee should be considering for its own nomination process. One thing that's that's notable here about the, the parties is they are different in terms of how they allocate their delegates. Democrats are kind of it's kind of this strictly proportional system. You know, if you meet a certain threshold of the vote, you're, you're entitled to some delegates. The Republican side is is much more um, either winner take all or states that I would sort of categorize as winner take most. Um, even some of, even some of the early states. And so, if you're a um, plurality winner on the Republican side, as Donald Trump was early in the process. Um, in states like New Hampshire and South Carolina, um, he really benefited in terms of the overall delegate count. Now, does that mean the party should, you know, should should change in some way? You know, I, I don't necessarily know. Although, you know, I think that because Trump was this sort of insurgent candidate, um, you know, he was not uh, um, he was not someone that a lot of the party leadership really wanted. Now, the party leadership later coalesced around Trump, particularly in 2020, but even you know effectively in 2016. Even though a number of Republicans distanced themselves from his candidacy or or, or you know declined to endorse him after um, uh, uh, after the Access Hollywood tape came out, although it's not like those Republicans endorsed Hillary Clinton, so they didn't quite go. The, the whole the whole way in opposing um, in opposing Trump, but you know the w- back in the seventies when you know when Jimmy Carter won the Democratic nomination, um, th- that in some ways led to the creation of the so called superdelegates in the early eighties, in which the there would sort of be this this actual representation of of sort of institutional actors within the Democratic Party. Now those superdelegates they still exist, but they don't. They really only matter if there's a second ballot at the convention for for the Democrats. That's a that's a change following complaints about superdelegates 2016. But there's always this push and pull as to like how much party should the kind of formal members of the, of the party have versus how much power should the should the voters have. Basically, um, the general trend over the past several decades is that the voters have more power. But if you're a party leader, sometimes the voters do stuff do things that you don't want them to do. <laughs> um, and 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 it's you know it, it, it's a it's something that I think the parties sort of instinctively need to think about. But again, I think that uh, going back on sort of small d democratic reforms and primaries, I just don't think we popular because the public is basically used to being able to um, you know participate in primaries to the extent that they want to or can participate um, and to pick the nominees effectively themselves, even though you know you're sending delegates to the convention and, and that sort of thing as opposed to a direct. Um, a direct vote, but I don't think there's necessarily any any going back on on that that sort of long term trend. So speaking of Republican primaries, it seems like we will actually have a contested presidential primary on the Republican side with Nikki Haley um, announcing this week. What are your thoughts on Nikki Haley's run? Um, I give her credit for actually getting in um, where so many other Republicans have declined to. And so she's the one who's going to have to take the sort of incoming fire from from Donald Trump, who, of course, announced very early right after the um, 
the midterm. And, um, you know, the thing I would say is that, you know, in a presidential primary, particularly crowded field, there are a whole lot of candidates who announce, but only one person can win. So, you know, do, you, do I expect Nikki Haley to be the nominee? No, not necessarily. Um, you know, it does seem like the Republican side is sort of setting up to be primarily a Donald Trump versus Ron DeSantis fight, but maybe DeSantis doesn't run or maybe DeSantis runs, but he doesn't pan out as a candidate, even though he's, he's pulling really extraordinarily well for a, uh, you know, for someone who has never run before, who's not a former vice president or something like that, um, and so we'll just have to see if his support is 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 real and if he could firm it up when he actually decides to run. But that's you know that's a story more for the summer because it sounds like DeSantis is going to wait to to run again. But I think the hope for someone like Nikki Haley would be that if if in fact. Um, DeSantis doesn't run or he flops, then someone else will have to emerge as the sort of counterweight to Donald Trump. And like, maybe that's Nikki Haley or maybe it's somebody else. Um, you know, again, I, I don't give her much of a chance at this point, but you know, these things, these things can change. And, um, there can be this sort of like trial and error period for voters, um, particularly in the summer and the fall of a primary where they like, it's like, they're like trying on shoes or something, you know, they try that like in, in, um, in 2016, you know, Trump was always there, but then, um, Herman Cain had his moment and, you know, Marco Rubio had, had his time and on and on and on and on. Um, eventually they just went with Trump, but, um, and this was true in 2012 as well, when like their Republicans were looking for options against Mitt Romney, Rick Perry, Michelle Bachman, others, kind of Newt Gingrich had their moments. They, Rick Santorum, um, they all ended up losing. But maybe at some point, Haley gets her moment. It's just, I don't think it's right now. We have a Republican prime, try before you buy. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. And you can just, you know, you could return it at Whole Foods if you don't, uh, uh, if, if, if you don't, if you don't like the sweater or whatever, but. Or your um, nearest it, UPS drop off location. <laughs> yeah. It, it is just interesting though that, that you, you, know, you do, you do see that. And, and again, it, but it, but it might just be that DeSantis and Trump have so much oxygen and are so strong that the other candidates are essentially just spoilers, which effectively could actually help Trump if, if his, if his sort of base is sort of more solid than, than DeSantis's is, um, and that's you know one of the polling quirks so far is that you know Trump if it's head to head against DeSantis Trump may be losing but if it's a bigger field that's offered to to the voters in the in the polls um, you know Trump Trump is usually leading so um, so we'll see and you know it may also be the case that that Trump himself is deflating and that we're you know that 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 uh, he's gonna he's gonna fall off and then. Maybe it's DeSantis versus somebody else, and, and you know, you just I, I, I find it difficult to try to to try to game it out. Um, but the one thing that polls just tell us is that there are really two really strong candidates right now: DeSantis and Trump. Yeah, um, and apparently that also doesn't include Ted Cruz. It seems like he is gearing up more for a Senate race, um, even though Texas state law allows him to run for both. It seems like he's sort of ruling out a presidential run. There's always an opportunity maybe to get in later. Although, you know, you also have to remember, and there's been some, there's been some talk about this in the press reflecting return internal Republican conversations that, you know, if Trump is the nominee, this really is it for him. Um, because, um, well, I, I guess hypothetically he'd lose and then run again in 2028. But um, you would think that if he loses in 2024, that it would be over. Um, or he get, he wins again, and then he's he's constitutionally barred from running again in, in 2028. So you're going to have, you know, regardless of what happens, you're going to have another round of a Republican presidential primary in 2028. Um, and so there may be some folks who just decide they want to wait until then. But my my general sense is usually that if you want to do this, you should just do it. Because um, 
it's the old kind of fortune favors the bold um, um, concept in that, you know, like it would have been easy for Obama to say, oh, well, I'll just let Hillary Clinton win and then I could run later. Um, but he decided not to do that and he was right to jump in when he did. Um, and uh, um, I, I think throughout history, you, you know, you, if, you, if you wait, you, you maybe get left left in the dust. Um, like Mario Cuomo, I guess, is a good example of that, too, because he constantly – he was, you know, hemming and hawing about running for president at a certain point. Then, then eventually, he just lost re-election to, you know, to the, to the New York governorship. So, um, you know, I think if I think if if some of these candidates want to do it, they should just go ahead and do it. But there is another, um, you know, likely contested open Republican prime, presidential primary coming up in four years. Um, obviously, if Biden wins this time, uh, uh, wins the nomination, you know, there will be another open open primary coming up in twenty twenty eight on the Democratic side too. So one last thing for this week, um, Alan Abramowitz also has a new article out on the crystal ball, and he examines data from the American National Election Survey from 2012 to 2020 and finds that there was a dramatic increase in liberalism among Democratic voters and that the leftward shift was actually during this time was actually greater among white Democrats than among non-white Democrats. But overall, um, both groups have have shifted to the left. You know, I think the the main point is that uh, you know we're we're seeing greater ideological polarization. Um, Democrats, especially, are now you know we'd already kind of seen the polarization on the Republican side of more Republicans identifying as conservatives. Now we're seeing uh, a greater number of Democrats identifying as liberal. But he also looks he also finds that the most that we're now at the most extreme average scores for supporters of both parties. In his piece, he also breaks it down by their positions on specific issues. I think it's really interesting, um, you know, that Republican voters have actually become somewhat more conservative on a on abortion, but they are less conservative um, on questions related to whether or not the federal government should provide support to Black Americans. Um, uh, for Democrats, though, there's just a, a greater leftward shift, um, both on on government um, responsibility for jobs and living standards, um, support for Black Americans, um, and and also abortion. What are your thoughts and and takeaways from Obramowitz's findings? I think what Alan is trying to sort of respond to in some ways is this idea that. Um, as sort of white liberals kind of lead the way on the Democratic side, that they're sort of leaving, um, you know, non-white Democrats, which, you know, historically, um, particularly among black Americans, is sort of the most rock solid demographic group for Democrats in the whole country, that they're sort of leaving them behind ideologically. And I think what Alan finds is that, yeah, there's more of a kind of a leftward shift amongst white Democrats over the past three presidential elections from 2012 to 2020. But also that non-white Democrats are also moving um, are also moving left at the same time, and so yeah, there's some ideological distance there on on average, um, particularly in terms of a person's own conception as to whether they're liberal, whether they consider themselves liberal or not. Um, and it is true that in ideological self-identification, Republicans are likelier to call themselves conservative than Democrats are to call themselves liberals, and so the Democratic Party is much more of a um, 
a coalition among people who think of themselves as both liberal as either liberal or moderate. But in terms of actual positions, um, you know, white Democrats and non-white Democrats are not that far apart, at least on some of the particularly on the economic kinds of issues. And also that um, the level of ideological cohesion on the on the Democratic side is is is, is uh, getting more dramatic. And it sort of makes sense as we think about sort of the longer sweep of American history. You know, the Democratic Party used to have frankly, a lot of conservatives in it, Southern conservatives, uh, even in the 70s and 80s, those folks are gone or they're Republicans now. And the people who are left and the people who've been newly attracted to the party um, are, you know, are, are, are more ideologically in tune with where the, where the Democratic Party is. So um, there's some pretty striking kind of tables and, and figures in, in Alan's piece. So um, if you want to learn more about it, uh, check it out in the uh, Crystal Ball. And also, uh, Crystal Ball, free to sign up. Email newsletter, centerforpolitics.org backslash Crystal Ball. Well, thank you, Kyle. It was great talking with you this week. Thanks, Kara. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong Whaley. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Faze. You can learn more about the Center for Politics on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at center number four politics. Until next time.